0: Well, Happy New Year again to everyone. Uh, we, I think we make sure the coffee's extra strong uh, whenever some Christmas or New Year's has a worship service. No decaf for this crowd, I hope. I will end this sermon early if I see your head bobbing. Okay. You probably know that's an empty threat. <laughs> I'm sure that many of you have thought, if not already made, some, some solid, good New Year's resolutions, um, slim down, stop eating so much sugar, drinking so much caffeine, I mean, you can start those tomorrow, you know, along with your, your new gym membership and your resolves to take walks and spend more time praying and reading. Um, Because all of those will last at least till the middle of the month, maybe the end of the month. I'm not down on resolutions and goals. I I actually think they're they're very good. If you don't make any goals, you're probably not going to accidentally achieve them, right? Um, I think my most successful goals are usually those like achievement goals, you know, I'm kind of competitive. It needs to be something that I can add in, that I can do, read more books, you know, or uh, spend more time doing this or that. And the ones where I have to cut back, that's not so good, you know. Uh, eating less, uh, desserts, carbs, that kind of that stuff, doesn't, that doesn't work for me. But uh, as you think about sort of the nature of resolutions and, and uh, working hard at things we want to achieve, uh, that can be a challenge, right? Because it's all... All behavior modification, in a sense, is, is up to you. You've got to work your plan. You've got to stick to it. You've got to gut it out. You've got to never give up. Fail forward. All those cliches. Did I miss any? I'm sure. And the thing about when we are so focused on what we need to do is that it's easy to go one of, one, one of two ways and fall off the, the horse on either side. And in, in one sense, if, we're, if we uh, succeed and we do well, then we get prideful. But if we fail, if we come up short, we despair. And I think most people think that Christianity is about behavior modification. It's about working hard, right? Right? trying to look better, be better, sin less. But Christianity is not exactly that, is it? No, of course, there's there's a facet of it where God calls us uh, to obey, to work acts of faith, but it's nowhere near the starting point of our faith, our foundation. What we need is inner transformation before we're capable of any outer good works. And this inner transformation is not something we can achieve. The Holy Spirit has to change your heart to accept the good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ died for you and your only hope of salvation is trusting in Christ alone to save you. We don't clean ourselves up to come to Jesus. We don't work our way to that. No, we bring him our mess and then he cleans us up. And he sends us out with his power to then obey and to work. I think some of us need to hear that because we're on that treadmill of working, doing enough for God when he's done it for us. That doesn't have a whole lot to do with the sermon, but that's my opening. And to remind you where we've been, this is the last uh, Sunday, the last sermon in a Advent series, in Isaiah, and it's been kind of grabbing uh, prophecies from Isaiah from all over. And as we've done that, as we've looked at different chapters, different sections, it's it's been with a theme though. It's been working through Christ's life. Uh, the first one was Isaiah seven that pointed to his incarnation, his birth. Right? Then chapter 61 foretold what his life would be like. Then chapter 53 prophesied a very vivid picture of the details of his death. Then on Christmas we heard an Easter sermon of his resurrection from chapter 61. Today's passage is, is the end where we see from Isaiah 40 a picture of the future, of God's rule and reign. And so turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11, and then we're going to dip back to uh, chapter 9 and grab a verse there. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. And then we come back to a very familiar familiar verse from uh, chapter 9, verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. As you know, if you've heard me preach before, I use some version of of chapter 40, verse 8 to uh, end my scripture reading. So this morning, let's say it together. Look at verse 8. Let's say that in unison. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Almighty, eternal and merciful God, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. Open, illuminate our minds that we may, we may better understand your word, that our lives may be conformed to what we've understood, and that we may not displease you, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, since we haven't been working through the book of Isaiah, it's, it's tough for us to understand the structure, unless you've been studying it recently. Um, but, one thing you need to know is that chapter 40 is, is sort of a new beginning. It's the first chapter in what's called the book of consolation in Isaiah. After all of the pronouncements of judgment of Judah and Jerusalem that, that dominate the first 39 chapters, this part points now towards the return of God's people to Jerusalem. Uh, Edward Young, a commentator, says, listen, when one turns from the 39th to the 40th chapter, it is as though he steps out of the darkness of judgment into the light of salvation. And the first thing we see in these verses is God's love spoken through Isaiah. Just look at the first two verses. Let me read those again. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly. To Jerusalem, cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. When Isaiah was prophesying all these things, the people hadn't been punished with exile from their land yet, they hadn't been conquered or cast out. But there would come a time. And Isaiah tells them explicitly when God would use a foreign power, the Babylonians, to conquer them as judgment on their sins. And they would be in exile for 70 years, a lifetime. That was a brutal punishment for them. But God would not abandon them, He would bring them back out of captivity back to the land. And so even before it happens, Isaiah is tasked with telling the people that they would be restored one day, that they would be forgiven and brought back to the land. Because after judgment comes mercy and tenderness. Their sins would be pardoned as they were humbled through this judgment. Their conflict with God would be over. I don't know if you've seen the new Ben-Hur movie. Don't even know if you know it's been remade. (laughs) Uh, I watched it recently. I'm sure it pales in comparison to the original, which I haven't seen in probably 20 years. Um, But I thought they did a pretty good job with it. I think it was pretty well done. Good acting, great uh, chariot race uh, action scenes. And I forgot how much Jesus is all over that movie. Uh, but the main relationship in the story is Judah Ben-Hur, who is a wealthy Jewish man. Um, sort of, uh, you know, he, he meets Jesus when he's, Jesus is a carpenter. So, you know, it's in, the, in this early AD. And obviously Rome, is, it's in, set in Jerusalem, and, and Rome is taken over. But uh, Judah has a, an adopted brother, Uh, Masala Severus, who is a Roman. And I'm not going to describe the whole thing, but the relationship between the two of them fractures early on, and the two are forced into adversarial roles. And uh, essentially anger, pride, hatred, a a desire for revenge kind of drive them. And uh, certainly Judah, but it drives them to want to kill one another, which they almost do. And spoiler alert, close your ears if you really don't know how this ends. I mean, it's been out for, what, 70 years, the original. But because of the influence of a certain Jewish carpenter who dies, and, and Judah witnesses that, he softens and lays down his anger to his brother and eventually reaches out. And the climax of the movie is when reconciliation is achieved, when their warfare is ended, when they don't hold their sins against one another. It's a picture of that freedom that God's people receive when He pardons them and comes in peace to love them. And so the good news here in Isaiah must be announced. Verses 3-9. through Let's read that again. It's it's God's glory announced by a herald. A voice cries. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level. And the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald of good news, lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Now, if you know your Bibles well, you hear those words in verses 3 and 4. And who do you think of? John the Baptist. Yeah, all four gospel writers quote, Those verses, at least verse 3, when they introduce John into their narrative. John functions as the herald of Jesus beginning his earthly ministry. But in the original context, Isaiah is calling for a road to be built. Because God is returning his people to Jerusalem. A highway from the east through the desert because they're returning from Babylon. And a voice, a herald who announces the king's coming, is given the words to speak. Verse 9 essentially says, go, tell it on the mountain, right? The highest place you can find to declare the great news that the glory of the Lord will be revealed. That he will fulfill his promise to return the people to their land. How do we know this is true? Because a man said it? No, these verses remind us that men are as fragile and transient as a flower, as a blade of grass. No, it's because God has said it. And God's Word is always true and will always stand. But how do we know that God's Word Will stand forever because God will reign forever for the benefit of his people. Uh, The rest of these verses 10, 11, and then verse 9, 7. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd, he will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now throughout, the Old Testament are references to God putting someone on David's throne, one of his descendants forever. And the first time is a promise to David himself in Second Samuel chapter seven, and it's repeated over and over in different places in the Old Testament. I've printed a few of those in the last part of your outline, but listen as you hear Psalm eighty-nine, verses three and four says. I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. And Jeremiah thirty three seventeen says, For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. But of course, God put certain conditions in place as well. As Psalm 89:30 reminds us, if his sons forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Those who have read Second Kings and the prophets of the exile know that there's a problem with David's descendants. After David's son Solomon rules, Israel splits. Jeroboam, who's the son of one of Solomon's servants, ends up ruling ten tribes, ten parts of the kingdom in the north. And Rehoboam, Solomon's son, gets one tribe, Judah, in the south. And eventually the northern half of the kingdom is scattered by the Assyrians. And then over a hundred years later, the southern kingdom is exiled, as we've already talked about, taken into exile by Babylon. And while a remnant of God's people always survives, David's descendants don't take the throne again. When the New Testament rolls around, we know that the Romans are in control. There's no Davidic king. And yet... Here's the beautiful thing. Though David's descendants stopped sitting on his physical throne in Jerusalem, this covenant, these prophecies are still fulfilled by David's greatest descendant. Jesus Christ himself is a descendant of David, which is why Matthew and Luke list out Jesus' long genealogy in the Gospels to establish his claim to the throne, and he will fulfill this promise of ruling and reigning forever. It's there in his birth narratives, Luke 1, verses 32, 33. He, Jesus, will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no and Jesus has ruled and reigned over all creation from the beginning of eternity as one member of the triune God. As the world was created though, as, as, as man fell into sin and the reign of Satan in this world began, his rule was usurped. By an imposter, though. Jesus entered the world, lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, was raised to new life by His Father, and ascended into heaven. And with that, the new kingdom is inaugurated. It's begun. It's an already, but not yet, kingdom. Jesus is already reigning over His new creation, but it's not yet how it will be. It's not complete. And we live in that in-between time, don't we? The last days where God's victory has been declared, but this world is still broken and is full of sin as the devil tries furiously to keep his grip on it. But his days are numbered. And someday God will bring this age to a close and usher in the new heavens and the new earth. God in three persons has always reigned and will always reign. That has never, ever been in doubt. The universe would cease to exist if God stopped ruling. But of course God cannot cease being God, so that would never happen. So no matter what we decide about God, no matter what human philosophical arguments can be brought up about God's existence, has really zero difference. Makes no difference to the fact that He does. And He controls every molecule in existence. Really the only question is whether we will acknowledge His reign whether we will submit ourselves to Him and be part of the new kingdom. And look at what the kingdom's going to be like. Isaiah 40 says, He will be a shepherd who will gently lead and carry His flock. He comes in great might, it said, but He is tender with His people. Isn't that what we want from our leaders, from our fathers? That they are strong enough to protect us, to take it out on our enemies, but tender enough not to take it out on us, to love us. And that is the picture we see. I think people have stopped using the phrase YOLO, right? Remember a couple years ago, it was like YOLO everything. And uh, you only live once, was, uh, you just threw that out there. And, and I, I guess, um, you know, it's a good reminder sometimes to try something new, to step out of your comfort zone, sort of, um, you know, if you're strapped in, your friends talk you into doing a bungee jump, and you're like up there, and I don't want to do this, and then someone yells YOLO, then pff, you just do it, right? It might be a good, good thing to challenge you. Um, it can also become quite the excuse to uh, spend money on yourself. Honey, I bought $20,000 Super Bowl tickets. We don't really have that money. YOLO. I think it can be uh, an excuse to be pretty self-indulgent, not worry about consequences. But for the Christian, it's not even true, is it? We will live again. We have eternity with God. And the choices we make here will echo in eternity. And knowing that God is ruling the universe and will bring this world to an end, but then to a glorious new beginning for His people, that should give us the ultimate Perspective. If our life now is painful, we can know that not only does your pain have purpose, but that one day you will be pain free. If life is full of conflict, we can know that one day all will be resolved and that peace will rule. If people have let you down or have taken advantage of you, know that God will make all things right. If you live with guilt and shame about your past, not only can you cast those things on Jesus now, but you will release those things the moment you arrive in heaven. If you have sin that you just can't shed, And stop that you addictions that you cannot master one moment in eternity will free you from them. As an Andrew Peterson song says, after the last tear falls, there is love. God's overpowering, all-consuming, perfect love will swallow up his people and make them new creations, ruling and reigning with him for eternity. All because Jesus came, saving us through His death and His resurrection. God's people, those who are in Christ, hear these words and be comforted that your warfare with Him is over, that your iniquity is pardoned, that the Lord holds you in His arms in love, and He will hold you fast forever. Amen. Take some time to pray and thank God for that and then I'll close us in prayer.